Labour Leadership Contest and the Rise of Jeremy Corbyn by Harpal Brar, London, August 2015. A united establishment front is forming against him, but thousands of workers are drawn towards Corbyn's promise of a fairer Britain. The Labour Party leadership contest to elect a leader to succeed Ed Miliband following Labour's defeat in the May 2015 general election is in full swing. Four candidates have joined the fray. Yvette Cooper, Shadow Home Secretary, Andy Burnham, Shadow Health Secretary, Liz Candle, the most Blairite of them all, and Jeremy Corbyn, Member of Parliament for Islington North since 1983. Jeremy Corbyn was an outsider at the outset, who only made it onto the ballot paper at the last minute after a diverse group of Labour MPs, with no intention of voting for him, chose to nominate him in order to widen the range of views in the contest and to promote debate about the party's future. It was a blunder that some of those who nominated him have come to bitterly regret, as, for instance, Margaret Beckett, who has said that she was a moron to have done so. They had obviously expected the same outcome as in 2010, when they nominated Hackney North MP Diane Abbott to provide a little variety in an otherwise all-male centrist field. Be that as it may, Mr Jeremy Corbyn, dubbed JC by his followers, has become the favourite to win the leadership election. This turn of events has surprised everyone, including Corbyn himself. His entry has lit up the election campaign and sparked a social movement of activists, attracting mainly young people, but not the young alone. His campaign has gained an apparently unstoppable momentum. He has spoken at more than 70 rallies, with another 30 to go. His meetings have attracted large crowds, with audiences of over a thousand in Glasgow and two thousand in Leeds, and he invariably has to leave the meetings to address supporters left out in the cold. His natural, unspun approach and clear lack of media training is helping him to reach those who are tired of sound bites and perfect but wooden presentations by established political worthies. We are not doing celebrities, personality, abusive politics, says JC. Adding, Obama-style, this is about hope. A YouGov poll of the 10th of August 2015, conducted for the Times newspaper, gave JC a convincing lead in the contest, showing him to have the support of 53% in the vote, which would make him an outright winner. His campaign has signed up 10,000 volunteers, more than his three rival campaigns put together. Yvette Cooper has signed up 4,300 volunteers, Andy Burnham 3,000, and Liz Candle 1,800. The same poll also showed Corbyn leading among all three groups of voters, members, affiliated members, and those who had paid £3 each to register to vote in the leadership election. And he has won more constituency party nominations than any of his rivals. Corbyn's campaign picked up momentum in early July, after he won the endorsement of big trade unions, including Unite, for his candidacy. Although Unite General Secretary Len McCluskey had argued for Andy Burnham, 
the union's executive committee voted overwhelmingly for Corbyn as an anti-austerity alternative. Since then, Unite has loaned Corbyn £50,000 interest-free, to be repaid by the 12th of September, the date on which the election result is scheduled to be announced, and he has also gained the support of half a dozen other unions. Over the course of the last Parliament, more than two-thirds of the 180,000 Labour Party members who received ballot papers for the last leadership contest have resigned, given up or died, to be replaced by younger and more radical activists. This leadership election will therefore see the participation of the largest number of people in several decades. In the three months following the general election, Labour membership has soared to nearly 300,000, while a similar number of affiliated and registered supporters have also signed up. Of the latter, 121,000 are registered supporters, who joined by paying just £3, while another 189,000 have joined from trade unions as affiliated supporters. All these categories add up to a total electorate of 610,000. Fewer than one in ten of those was a member at the time of the last leadership contest. In fact, 160,000 people joined up to vote in the last 24 hours before registration closed, at the end of Wednesday the 12th of August. Writing in the opinion column of the Financial Times, a certain Tom Baldwin offered this explanation for the membership explosion. The surge in numbers is neither Trotskyite entryism, there are not that many of them, nor the consequence of some popular uprising against Blairite orthodoxy. It is more akin to crowdsourcing, in a narrow online world where anyone associated with the last Labour government is denounced as a Tory or a war criminal. The result, says Mr Baldwin, is to make Labour unrepresentative of the country, and he adds a dire warning. Idealistic, young, inspiring some of them may be. If they elect Corbyn, they will push Labour further away from the electorate that concluded three months ago we lacked economic credibility and were out of touch. Ballot papers were sent to members on Friday the 14th of August, and the deadline for voting is the 10th of September. About 1,200 rogue supporters were uncovered by party officials, including 150 who were expelled for standing as candidates for the Green Party, 92 members and candidates with the Trade Union and Socialist Coalition, and 18 senior figures from the Left Unity Outfit. Labour's former leaders speak out against Corbyn. The prospect of Corbyn becoming the Labour leader has shocked not only his rivals, but also the party grandees, including some Class A war criminals who have come out of the woodwork to declare what a disaster such an outcome would be for the Labour Party. Former Prime Minister Tony Blair has gone on record to say that those whose heart was with JC should go and get a transplant. Apocalyptic warnings have been delivered by Blairites concerning the dreadful aftermath that would ensue if JC were to be elected. David Miliband, who lost the leadership to his brother Ed, says that electing JC would lead to one-party rule under the Tories. Alistair Campbell, Blair's former communications chief, and John McTurnan, Blair's former secretary, have pronounced similarly. Former Prime Minister Gordon Brown warned on the 16th of August that JC as party leader would leave Labour pure but impotent. 
laughably characterising him as a Marxist throwback, he said that JC would reduce the party to one of permanent protest, as the voters would walk away from us for many years, if Labour lurched to the left, handing the next election to the Conservatives. He forgot to say that similar electoral results were achieved under his watch, when the Labour Party could hardly be accused of having moved to the left. Showing a complete disconnect between language and thought, Brown accused Corbyn of wanting to introduce a Soviet-style command economy in Britain, a vision he asserted was years out of date. Delivering his 50-minute speech in the symbolic Royal Festival Hall, scene of the victory party for Labour's 1997 landslide electoral triumph under Tony Blair's leadership, he pleaded with Labour voters not to desert the political centre ground, saying that Labour had a moral duty to the poor to make itself electable. Stressing his point, he said, We find that the grouping in the party that Labour electors want to give the most votes to is the grouping they themselves say is least likely to be able to take Labour into power. He savaged what he perceives to be JC's foreign policy stance thus, If our global alliances are going to be alliances with Hezbollah and Hamas and Hugo Chavez's Venezuela and Vladimir Putin's Russia, there is no chance of building a worldwide alliance that would deal with poverty and inequality and climate change and financial instability. A fitting response to Brown's ramble was given by Graham Allen, MP, who said that Mr Brown should preface any foreign policy advice with his view of the Iraq war, the one million dead and the release of the ISIS virus. Jack Straw, another war criminal, stated on the 13th of August that he knew Jeremy and knew Jeremy simply could not do this job. Yvette Cooper, the Shadow Home Secretary and one of Corbyn's rival contestants for the Labour leadership, while admitting that she understood why many people have bought into what Jeremy is offering, said that he was not credible in the 21st century, and warned, Jeremy is offering old solutions to old problems, not new answers to the problems of today. His are the wrong answers for the future. Ms. Cooper did not care to mention today's problems or their modern solution. Surely, the old problems of poverty, inequality, destitution, homelessness, the exploitation of the masses by a tiny handful of the darlings of fortune, and the exploitation of the oppressed nations by a tiny handful of imperialist countries that are engaged in relentless predatory wars against them, are still with us. Just as the old solutions, namely the overthrow of imperialism and an end to the division of society into classes, are just as valid today as they have been since the beginning of the 20th century. Ms. Cooper did not mention these trifles, for she is not inclined to go down the road, which would deprive her of the privileged existence to which she has become accustomed. Having JC as a leader, she says, would keep us out of power and stop us changing the world. Well, Labour was in office from 1997 to 2010, and it changed the world all right, but only for the worse. It waged wars abroad, from Yugoslavia through Afghanistan to Iraq, slaughtering in the process over 2 million innocent men, women and children, and displacing over 6 million more. And it waged war on the poor at home. If this is how Miss Cooper wants to change the world, we thankfully decline her offer. As to whether JC can do any better, we shall come to this question later on. 
Liz Kendall, an honorary structured Blairite, has denounced JC's policy stance as warmed up Benism. Andy Burnham, who was the favourite to win the leadership before the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, seeing the writing on the wall, is behaving with restraint and moderation. Speaking on BBC Radio, he said, Attacks on Jeremy have misread the mood in the party, which wants something different, something more to say on the doorstep at election time. He has expressed his common ground with JC on housing and transport, while expressing his disagreement with him on Europe and public services. He also attacked free schools, academies and private landlords, and promised to increase the minimum wage for young people to the level for adults. He has promised to abolish tuition fees, to crack down on zero-hours employers, to oppose the welfare bill and its attack on child tax credits, to fight for affordable homes and to take railways into public ownership. He has even indicated that he might be willing to serve as a member in JC's shadow cabinet. By taking the above stance, he has broken ranks with the anti-JC camp of Labour grandees, as well as with Miss Cooper and Miss Kendall, all of whom were agreed on one point, the unelectability of Labour with JC in the leadership. All that matters to them is Labour getting office through grovelling to the City of London. Is Corbyn a dangerous Marxist? Jeremy Corbyn's stance on domestic and foreign affairs may be summed up as follows. An end to further private contracts in the NHS, public ownership of the railways, nationalisation of the big six energy companies, higher taxation of high earners and wealthy people, including the restoration of the 50% tax rate on incomes over £150,000. But we may need to review that in 2020, depending on whether the deficit is still there in 2020 and what levels of inequality there are. The right to buy their homes for private tenants, printing money to invest in infrastructure, higher council tax bans for the super-rich, and a value tax on unused land or property. Revisiting the question of Clause 4 of the Labour Party Constitution, which called for the public ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange, but was dropped under Blair's leadership in 1994. More public spending, except on defence, and scrapping the Trident nuclear weapon missile system. Further policies include quitting NATO, JC calls NATO an expansionist organisation and characterises its stance over Crimea as hypocritical. NATO's attempt to encircle Russia is one of the big threats of our time, he wrote in an article for The Guardian. He says it was wrong to allow countries such as Poland, as a former member of the Warsaw Pact in the Soviet orbit, to join NATO. Adding, we should have gone down the road Ukraine went down in 1990, which was an informal agreement with Russia that Ukraine would be a non-nuclear state and would be non-aligned in its foreign policy. Europe. JC's attitude towards Europe is somewhat ambivalent. He says that the European Central Bank has been brutal towards Greece, adding that if Prime Minister David Cameron were to opt out of the EU guaranteed workers' rights, he, JC, would campaign for Britain to leave the bloc altogether. In any case, he says, he will not give Cameron a blank check in his negotiations with EU leaders. On Syria, JC has ruled out voting for airstrikes against ISIS. If he wins the leadership election, that would, in all probability, scupper government plans in this regard. Support for the two-state solution in Israel-Palestine 
he has proposed sanctions on Israel and called for a ban on arms sales to it. He opposed the Iraq war and has said that, if elected, he would issue an apology for the war. In addition, he has called for Tony Blair, George Bush and other architects of the war to face criminal charges. He expressed support for Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, met Jerry Adams and other Sinn Féin leaders in the 80s during the IRA bombing campaign in England, inviting them to Parliament shortly after the 1984 Brighton bombing, and has defended Mordecai Vanunu, the Israeli nuclear whistleblower. He campaigned against South African apartheid and was arrested in 1984 during a protest outside the South African embassy. The above list is neither exhaustive nor unqualified, for there are lots of ifs and buts in JC's stances. There is nothing in Corbyn's political and economic propositions, nothing in his foreign and internal policy stance, that could be described as truly socialistic in the Marxist understanding of that term. Corbyn is not a Marxist, it is only others, composed in equal parts of his malicious enemies and starry-eyed supporters who pin this label on him. Asked in an interview if he was a Marxist, he replied that Marx was a fascinating figure who observed a great deal and from whom we can learn a great deal. A Marxist would have replied simply in the affirmative. Of course Marx was a fascinating character who observed a lot and doubtless we can learn a great deal from him. But that is not the important thing. What is most important about Marx is that he was above all a revolutionary, who made a thorough analysis of capitalism and came to the scientific conclusion that, far from being the final destiny of humanity, it was merely a transitional stage in the long march of humanity from primitive communism to the higher stage of communism through the overthrow of capitalism and the dictatorship of the proletariat. On the assumption and it is a big assumption that J.C. knows this, he dares not utter this truth, since that would put paid to his chances of leadership of his party, let alone the leadership of Britain. Let us frankly state that Jeremy Corbyn is a social democrat, albeit a radical one, of the old Labour variety. It is not that Corbyn is particularly radical, it is that the Labour Party has moved so far to the right as to be indistinguishable from the Conservatives. It is in this context that he is perceived as being almost a Marxist and a revolutionary. This being the case, it is hardly surprising that he is regarded as being the bearer of an anti-capitalist programme. So, if Corbyn is not a revolutionary Marxist, why is he singled out for abuse? With both the main bourgeois parties, Tory and Labour, totally tied to imperialist wars abroad and attacks on the working class at home, with both of them tied hand and foot to the city financiers, armaments manufacturers and oil barons, a lot of people feel frustrated and angry. It is this torrent of frustration and anger, rising by the day, which has given rise to the phenomenon of which Mr Corbyn is the beneficiary, for his rivals are sullied by their association with a system that looks after the robber barons of finance capital while piling misery, austerity and cuts on the vast masses of the working class. JC is offering, and says he embodies, hope. His message is, yes we can. 
Reader, have you heard this vague message of hope before from someone else in another country? JC appears to be offering something different from the decaffeinated conservatives who describe themselves as New Labour, to use the apt words of Peter McKay in the Daily Mail. An editorial in the same paper published a week later correctly summed up the state of affairs that has led to the surge in Corbyn's popularity. Anyone mystified by the rise of Jeremy Corbyn should look no further than today's survey of chief executives' rocketing pay, says the opening sentence. Then it goes on to make a characteristic denunciation of the dreadful suffering caused by putting into effect Marxist theories in the former Soviet Union and other socialist countries. Having uttered these baseless assertions, the editorial nevertheless goes on to offer this explanation of Corbyn's surge in the leadership contest. But no wonder Labour activists demand radical solutions, when the high pay centre finds the bosses of our top 100 firms earn almost £5 million a year each. That's a staggering 183 times the average worker's annual salary of £27,000. You don't have to be a Bolshevik to find this huge disparity offensive, for in most cases, it owes nothing to merit, and everything to the greed of mutually backscratching remuneration committees. Even ardent champions of capitalism will be appalled that chief executives have helped themselves to an extra £800,000 each, over four years, in which they've imposed minimal increases or pay freezes on their employees. As most Britons are intelligent enough to see, Corbynite socialism is no answer. But while the boardroom pay racket continues, the enemies of capitalism will never be starved of support. Peter McKay, in the Daily Mail article cited earlier, made this thoughtful observation. There's public anger, even among those who do not vote Labour, about how we are fleeced by banks, cheated by big business, and ruled by politicians who, whatever their party, seem to attract big money sponsorship. Might Back to the Future Corbyn be a sign that new generations of voters who have never heard of Clause 4 are ready to give real Labour a chance? Corbyn is decidedly the beneficiary of this rise in anti-establishment and vaguely anti-capitalist activism. A united establishment front against Corbyn takes shape. Labour Party grandees, two of the other candidates for Labour leadership, the Zionist Jewish Chronicle and the Conservative Telegraph, have joined hands in an effort to stop Corbyn from being elected Labour leader. The Jewish Chronicle on 12th of August published a front-page article entitled These are the questions Jeremy Corbyn must answer. This article was then taken up by a certain Dan Hodges in the Telegraph of 25th of August. In his piece, Mr Hodges concluded, Jeremy does not personally indulge in prejudice, but he does indulge prejudice. The slur here is only too obvious. Time and space does not allow us to refute this foul accusation. What is strange is that Mr Hodges, being ignorant of the history of the Labour Party, or feigning ignorance, makes this bold claim. The Labour Party used to be clear on this stuff. Zero tolerance of racism. Zero tolerance of apologists of racism. No platform for racism. And now that's gone. It would take little effort to prove that racism, while not a fault of Mr Corbyn personally, is far from being alien to the Labour Party as a whole 
which has practiced it throughout its entire existence. Meanwhile, five big Labour donors have threatened to cut off funding if JC wins. These include Asama Lam, the owner of Hull City Football Club, and Richard Brindle, the insurance magnate. What are the consequences of a Corbyn victory? Despite all these efforts, it appears that all attempts to stop the Corbyn juggernaut are failing, and he is well on the way to becoming the leader of the Labour Party. What we must ponder would be the consequences of that. Consequences that reach far beyond the party whose leadership he looks set to assume. There are several possibilities. First, Labour could splinter, just as it did in 1981, after the election to leadership of another messiah of the Trotskyite revisionist and left social democratic fraternity, namely the late left-winger Michael Foote. Following the latter's election, several prominent leaders of the Labour Party walked away to form the Social Democratic Party, the SDP, which later on merged with the Liberal Party to form what we know now as the Liberal Democratic Party. Leaving such a split aside, Corbyn has a mere 15 declared supporters among the party's 232 MPs. One of the remaining 217 who happened to bump into a Financial Times correspondent on his way to interviewing JC said, It is a disaster. It's a return to the 1980s. We are going back to a time of purges, deselections, and putches. With such a paucity of support among his fellow Labour MPs, JC is likely, notwithstanding his optimism, to encounter great difficulty in filling the opposition party's 100 or so frontbench positions. In such a situation, there might be a serious attempt to depose him. The second possibility is that he somehow manages to keep his party together and leads it into the next general election in 2020 and to a disastrous defeat, as did Michael Foote in 1983 and as is predicted by his opponents within and beyond the Labour Party. Last, there is a very outside possibility that he leads Labour to victory at the next election. This could happen partly as a result of trouble in the Tory camp. Contrary to appearances, the Conservatives are a very fractious party with a slim majority in Parliament. The Tory EU sceptics who want Britain out of Europe will seek to harness the anti-establishment sentiments, the very sentiments of which JC is currently the beneficiary, to defeat Cameron in the planned referendum next year on EU membership. With JC in the leadership, Cameron cannot be sure of getting Labour to support him in the referendum. This carries the real danger of a Tory split and the fall of the government. The idea, widely floated, that with the election of JC, happy days for the Tories will never cease, and that they will be the permanent party of government, may turn out to be a chimera. This possibility may increase if Jeremy Corbyn is able to bring back to Labour a lot of Scottish voters who deserted the Labour Party for the Scottish National Party. This is a real possibility in view of the fact that some of the policies he is advocating, for example, getting rid of Trident, abolition of tuition fees, etc., are very similar to those advocated by the SNP. If, however, he fails to woo the Scottish electorate successfully, 
the chances of Labour forming a government with him or anyone else in the leadership are very slim indeed. Whichever of the above scenarios is realised, it will be good for the development of the working class movement, for it will serve to disabuse supporters of JC of the notion that socialism can be established in Britain through the election of a left social democrat to the leadership of the Labour Party. Corbyn as Prime Minister Let us dwell briefly on the last scenario, with Labour in office and JC ensconced in 10 Downing Street. The euphoria will last a year or so, before, as happened with François Mitterrand in France, the reality of Britain's imperialist economy and state institutions take their toll, and widespread disillusion sets in among his supporters. The hard truth is that Jeremy is offering no more than hope within the system, not outside of it. He is offering the petty bourgeois utopia of a reformed, kinder and decent capitalism, which he and his supporters christen socialism. Speaking at a packed meeting at Ealing Town Hall on Monday 17th of August, this is the vague wish list to which Corbyn treated his audience. This is an opportunity for the Labour Party at one level to elect a leader, but at another level to change our ways, to be more democratic about how we go about things, to be in tune with ordinary people standing up for the NHS, and those who are victims of the very cruel system that the Tories and Liberal Democrats, only the Tories and Lib Dems, have introduced. This campaign is about hope, it's about optimism, it's about decency. And there you have it. Hope, optimism and decency. What more could anyone ask for? Britain's Imperialist Wars Much is made by Corbyn's supporters of his opposition to war, in Iraq in particular. On 18th of March 2003, 140 Labour MPs voted for an amendment to the resolution in support of the government's war policy. The amendment stated, This House believes that the case for war against Iraq has not yet been established, especially given the absence of specific UN authorization. But in the event of hostilities to commence, pledges its total support for the British forces engaged in the Middle East, expresses its admiration for their courage, skill and devotion to duty, and hopes that their tasks will be swiftly concluded with minimal casualties on all sides. One of the rebels voting for this chauvinist and imperialist amendment was none other than Jeremy Corbyn. The Political Essence of the British Labour Party No matter who leads this party, no matter how decent and well-intentioned such a leader may be, he could never change the basic nature of the Labour Party, which has never been, is not now, and will never in the future be, a party of the British working class. Which has always been, is now, and will always in the future be, a party of British imperialism. The only thing to do with the Labour Party, we contend, is to work towards its disintegration, so as to rescue the working class from its deadly embrace, and build a really socialist party that is capable of storming the citadels of British imperialism and replacing it with working class rule, and so usher in an era of real prosperity for working people at home and an end to Britain's imperialist wars abroad. Mm -hmm.
Thank you.